Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your shared hallucination, speculative fiction, book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, we're talking about Eye in the Sky, a novel by Philip K. Dick that was originally published in 1957. Philip K. Dick was a massive part of my adolescence, though I really only read a small percentage of his 44 novels. I mean, it's a, a lot of novels. Like everyone else who grew up in the 80s, I really knew about Dick from film adaptations of his work, especially Blade Runner, of course, right, and Total Recall. Right around the time that I was watching these movies every single weekend, I also started going to the used bookstore every single weekend, and that was a real treasure trove. I picked up mass market copies of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep that became Blade Runner, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, The Man in the High Castle, and many others for pennies, really, though they've long since crumbled into dust. And sometimes I splurged on the vintage trade paperbacks, and I've still got my copies of Ubik, The Divine Invasion, and The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. But I didn't really read Philip K. Dick anymore after high school. By the time I got settled in the army, I, I was more interested in writers who were new to me than in reading the entire corpus of authors I'd already read. And when I was looking at the list of Dick's novels for Atos, I realized that I had really only read any of his novels that were written in the second and third phases of his career, and so I decided to read one of his earlier novels here. And I'm glad I did. I, I really enjoyed Eye in the Sky, and I'm glad to be talking with you about it today. So, on that note, if you're ready, let's go. Let's get into Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky is a journey through four, maybe five, different fantasy worlds. Worlds that exist only in the imaginations of some of the characters we'll meet. But the story has a frame in the real world, or at least the real world of the United States in the mid-1950s. So, let's start there. Jack Hamilton is an engineer for a defense contractor who builds missiles for the U.S. military as the Cold War arms race is really getting going here. It's a good job with good pay, and Jack takes satisfaction from being good at the work that he does. He has a wife, Marcia, who is educated, witty, gorgeous, supportive. In short, Jack Hamilton has the perfect life. But there's just one problem. Hamilton's wife might actually be a secret communist, an agent of the Soviet Union. The head of security at his company, a guy named Mick Fife, has been doing a routine security clearance investigation and has uncovered a lot of suspicious activity. Marcia subscribes to the Chicago Tribune and the New Yorker. She volunteered for Adlai Stevenson's presidential campaign. She's a member of the ACLU, and she's even given money to the NAACP, and these things make her a leftist, and that means she might be a Soviet agent, and that means that she and Hamilton are a security risk. So Hamilton is faced with the choice of giving up his job or giving up his wife, and of course he chooses to give up his job. Now, even though he's the guy who has started this process, McVeigh is a personal friend of Hamilton and Marcia, and he feels terrible about this whole thing, so they're all going to hang out and get some drinks. First, though, the three of them end up taking a tour of an exciting new engineering MacGuffin. And there's an accident. The three of them and five other people are hit with some kind of science fiction beam. The, the actual science of it doesn't matter. It's just another MacGuffin. And this is where the story really gets going. The eight victims of this accident are, are going to wake up, and they're going to find themselves being treated for their injuries, which have mostly been minor. But as they go about their normal lives, they rather quickly discover that they aren't in the real world anymore. 
The plot of the novel then is about figuring out what's going on and how to get home. And along the way, they'll end up in three other different worlds. And in each of these worlds, they have some obstacles to overcome in order to get out of it. But I'm not going to talk very much about that. And instead, I'll just talk about the premise and, and then get on with exploring these worlds, which is really what the book is about anyway. Eventually, our characters are going to discover that their physical bodies are on the floor of this engineering building that they've gone to visit, and that really only seconds have passed since the accident occurred. The MacGuffin beam that irradiated them has linked their consciousnesses, and so what they are doing is not actually traveling to parallel dimensions, but rather traveling between individual worldviews. They're seeing the world the completely subjective way that others see it, and living in that shared hallucination— I think this is a really great concept, and it's certainly an excellent way to explore these worldviews while also saying something about the subjective nature of our experience of the world, and we'll be taking up most of that in the, the next segment. But for now, let's go exploring. The first world we visit is a world very much like our own, except that the physical rules of the universe are irrational and non-scientific. Instead, this is a world in which religious cosmology is literally true. It is a geocentric universe. The sun revolves around the earth, and heaven is a physical place above the clouds, and God is physically present there, a literal eye in the sky. And the rules of religious morality are enforced through numinous power. If you lie, you'll be stung by a bee, and if you don't behave properly, you may even have a swarm of locusts sent after you. Angels exist, and they help the righteous in even the stupidest and most mundane situations, like car maintenance. The social order in this world is theocratic, and even the currency is actually a type of religious credit that you earn through righteous behavior. Science and engineering are devoted to making direct contact with God, and in particular, Hamilton's specialty in the real world is replaced here with theophonics, which literally means in Greek the, the sound of God or communicating with God. But this is not a Christian world, as you might expect. Rather, the religion practiced in this alternate United States is Second Babism. And Babism is a, a real religion. It's an Abrahamic religion like Judaism and Christianity, but it began as a, a type of Shiite Islam in the 19th century, though very quickly it became a distinct religion with new beliefs and rules, and it was quickly regarded as a heresy by the majority of Muslims. And Babism has survived into the present day, though there aren't very many practitioners. But the Baha'i religion, which has about 4 million adherents, itself grew out of Babism. So, you know, this is a big presence in the world. Second Babism, however, is an invention of Dick's, and it's the religion of the second Bab. Uh, Bab refers to the prophet, so it's the religion of the second prophet. And it is a distinctly American religion, with its center in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and this world that we're exploring here turns out to be the world of someone in the group whom Hamilton calls a religious nut. And Dick presents this world as absurd. I mean, sometimes comically, but also mostly sometimes horrifically. This religious fantasy world is not a world of grace or harmony, but is a world of superstition and magic. We, we aren't supposed to think this is a good place to go live. We're not supposed to think this would be a good way for the real world that we live in to be run. On top of all this, the social views of the architect of this world are just abhorrent. He's a racist and a misogynist, and he doesn't even want to be in the same room as the black character, who's a physicist named Laws. 
And this religious nut's beliefs about women and, and black people become literally true in his fantasy world. And, and Laws begins to behave like a caricature of a black man. I mean, really, he, he begins to resemble Jim from Huck Finn. And something similar happens to Marsha, whom this religious nut fears is a feminist. So not a place most of us would like to live. The second of the four worlds is the world of Edith Pritchett, a middle-aged single mother of a teenaged boy. Her world is a nice world. It's the world of advice columns and etiquette manuals. It's a world where nothing bad exists. And this starts with sex. For Mrs. Pritchett, sex is dirty and sexual desire, lust, is an evil distraction. It's something that makes us less than we should be. It's something that isn't a part of the human experience. It's actually something that makes us inhuman, makes us less than human. Just as in the first world, there's an engineering company doing the work of the, the principal theme of this world. And we get a nice explanation of all this from the, the head of the project that I'll just read to you. As you realize, Sigmund Freud developed the psychoanalytic concept of sex as a sublimation of the artistic drive. He showed how the basic, fundamental human urge toward artistic creativity, if given no valid means of expression, is transformed and altered into its surrogate form, sexual activity. Freud showed that in the healthy, uninhibited human, there is no sexual drive and, and no curiosity or interest in sexuality. Contrary to traditional thought, Sex is a wholly artificial preoccupation. When a man or woman is given a chance for decent, normal, artistic activity, painting, writing, music, the so-called sexual drive withers away. And it's not just sex that is gone in this world, but really all conflict. The newspapers in this world are basically just the arts and leisure section. There's no politics, no geopolitics in this world, just arts and banal dinner parties, really. Industry is gone because factories and warehouses aren't aesthetically pleasing and the work isn't redeeming, except for the soap factory, we should say, because soap is nice. And much of this is actually pretty nice, for some of the eight travelers anyway. Marcia and the other women like that sex is gone. They like that being sexy is no longer their chief function in society. And also in Mrs. Pritchett's world, racism is gone. Laws is actually put in charge of the research division at the soap factory. And he likes having a job because back in the real world, even though he has a PhD in physics, he's been working as a tour guide. He, he can't get a job as a scientist because he's black. And Dick gives him a, a series of great speeches about this. And I, I want to read some excerpts. And I'll say he, he's talking to Hamilton when he says these things. I tell you what. You try being colored a while. You try bowing and saying, yes, sir. Try putting yourself through six years of college, washing dishes. Try getting a degree the way I did. Try carrying that degree around in your pocket a few months, looking for a job. Want to know why I'm better off here? Because of you, Hamilton. It's your fault, not mine. Think that over. If you'd made some attempt back there. But you didn't. You had your wife and house and cat and car and job. You had it fine. Naturally, you want to go back, but not me. I didn't have it so fine, and I'm not going back. But even while Laws and Marcia and some of the other women like this world, prefer this world, maybe, Hamilton is unsatisfied with it, and, and so is Mrs. Pritchett's teenage son. And gradually, the others come around to the idea that they can't really stay here, that they have to escape. 
But it's only because Mrs. Pritchett is aware that this is her world and that she can lucid dream it to be whatever she wants. And she uses that power to impose a, a moral tyranny that becomes just too much for everyone, or, or most everyone anyway. And in the end, they defeat her by getting her to overuse her powers. As she removes anything that she finds unpleasant, the complex system of the world breaks down, and she can't remove a part without altering the whole in, in some way. And if you alter too many parts, then the whole thing just breaks. And so there's a, a moral lesson here too, right? You can't have a world that is just good stuff, because some of the good stuff is actually dependent on bad stuff. All right, let's uh, let's zip along. Let's check out the third world. This one is Joan Rice's, who was really the ringleader of the conspiracy against Edith Pritchett in the previous world. Joan is a young, unmarried woman, and she had figured out that they would go to her world next and that she could already be setting it up ahead of time, getting her mind to build the world before they even got there. And she has taken them home. They know it's not the real Bay Area of the 1950s, but she's tried to reconstruct it. And at first it seems great. People just go back to their lives and everything is awesome. But it turns out that Ms. Rice suffers from serious paranoia. She thinks everyone and everything is out to get her, and the world of her imagination reflects this. We come to find out that Ms. Rice has been abused by men in her life, including boyfriends, and that this abuse has made her scared. But it's also made her see the world as an inherently dangerous place. Dick describes this as a world full of predatory horrors. In each of the previous two worlds, some of our main characters have taken on the attributes of the world, whether they want to or not. Laws became a racist caricature in the first world, and in a world without sex, Marcia simply lost her sexual anatomy. In this world, Hamilton carries around a gun simply because he's a man, and men are inherently violent and scary. And so, Ms. Rice's world turns out to be something of a police state in which she keeps tabs on everyone so that she can make certain that she's safe. But her fears also turn out to be literally true, and, and much of the plot of this part centers around the fact that the Hamilton's house is a, a living being that is actively trying to kill them. Of course, everyone escapes, and so we can get to the fourth and final world now, which is a Marxist caricature of America. It's the United States, the way that a Marxist of the mid-20th century sees it, and it's basically Biff Tannen's alternate 1985 from Back to the Future Part 2. There's a greedy class of super-rich business types, gangsters running their own businesses using violence as a tool, and then the starving underclass. Dick writes that it's a, a world of gangster cities full of vice and crime. But in this world, the downtrodden are rising up, and the Bay Area is something of a war zone. Businessmen have the right to execute anyone they think might be a communist, and there is shooting in the street. There are secret agents, and there are members of the underclass who sell out their peers for money. Much of the drama of this section hinges on the assumption that this is Marsha's world, that this is the proof that she has been a communist all along. But that turns out not to be true. It's actually McFife's world, and it's McFife who's a secret communist in the real world. It's not clear that he's an agent of the Soviet Union. In, in fact, I think that seems unlikely. But he does use his position as a security investigator in this company to help protect his secret political organization. 
And he used his position to accuse Marsha of being a communist because he thinks that her brand of leftist politics is undermining the real hardcore extreme left's chance at entering mainstream politics. He thinks that she is all feelings, that she's an idealist. He says, people like her, they're more of a menace to party discipline than any other bunch. The cult of individualism, the idealist with his own law, his own ethics, refusing to accept authority. It undermines society. It topples the whole structure. Nothing lasting can be built on it. People like your wife just won't take orders. So, of course, our heroes get out of this world, too. And finally, they arrive back in the real world. Jack Hamilton goes to his boss and shares what he now knows, that McFife is the real communist. Of course, he can't prove it, and so nothing changes. But this is really Hamilton's point to begin with. Accusing someone of being a communist and then demanding that they prove that they're not is absurd. You can't prove a negative in any way. Our whole legal system, and in many ways our our entire American value system, is founded on the idea that the burden of proof rests on the accuser, not on the accused. Obviously, Dick is talking about McCarthyism and the Red Scare here, and we'll take that up in the next segment. Ultimately, Hamilton is actually happy that he has to leave his job. Traveling through these shared hallucinations has been cathartic for him, and he's come to see that he himself was living in a subjective delusion, even while his body was very much in a material and objectively real world. Everything he has is the result of war profiteering. He's been making a living from a particular business that feeds on fear and the resulting police state, and he's morally opposed to this. And he's glad that his blinders have been removed and that he can make this change. And so he's going into business with Laws, who's become a a real friend of his on their adventures. They're going to manufacture amazing home stereo systems for the discerning music fan. Hamilton is going to use his skills as an electronic engineer to help people enjoy life rather than perpetuate a, a culture of fear and distrust. What's more, their principal investor is Edith Pritchett. She always said that she wanted a world with more art and more culture, more beauty and less ugliness. And Hamilton has convinced her that this is a way that she can put her money where her mouth is. And that's how the story ends, with some of our adventurers making real changes in their lives because of this experience. And this is where I want to start in our Themes and Motifs segment with a look at the worldviews and what Dick is doing with them. It's clear that Dick doesn't like any of these imaginative worlds. We're not supposed to think that any of them would actually be a good or fulfilling place to go live. And we start with one that is run by a hypocritical theocracy, a society based around a religious system that rewards worship and belief over virtue. It's a society that's all faith and no work, no good deeds. And this world is also the world of harsh bigotry, of racism and misogyny. And it's anti-science, anti-knowledge, and presumably anti-education. In short, this is the worldview of a cultural conservative, which is now a a mainstream political position, but was actually fairly radical in the first half of the 20th century. We then travel to a world that is culturally progressive. It's kind of the reverse of the first world. Here, bigotry is gone, and the theocracy of those who pray the loudest is replaced by a world in which government and industry don't even exist because everyone is busy appreciating high culture. Dick himself is an artist, of course, and he was an avid fan of classical music and a real audiophile, so he doesn't dislike this idea in in quite the same way that he dislikes bigotry. 
But he shows us that this is a world that is hollow and empty, a, a world that takes away any kind of human conflict, but then also any kind of human interaction at all, including sex. And all of this feels like the kind of wishy-washy social progressivism that, as I said in our last episode, takes as its maxim, mean people suck. There isn't any real substance to this, because there isn't any real understanding of what the world is. And Dick, who thinks a lot about how the world works, finds this silly and frivolous. So at this point, I think these first two worlds are representations of quadrants on a double-axis political spectrum, both of which occupy a non-authoritarian spot, but with different cultural views. And I think that the other two worlds occupy the remaining two quadrants, and that Dick is showing us that none of these political ideologies has it right or is a force for good. So let's plot the, the next two worlds on this double-axis political spectrum. And these are both going to be on the authoritarian side, but then differing on the progressive to conservative axis. First, we have Joan Rice's police state. She doesn't want to overturn the social hierarchy. She isn't concerned with economic justice and really just wants to maintain the status quo. But she does want to live in a world in which every person and every action is monitored by the powers that be so that everyone will be safe. But specifically so that she will be safe. And so what she has in mind is a police state designed to protect the propertied class from deviance. And as we've seen, McFife also wants an ordered authoritarian world. And his critique of Marcia is also really a critique of Edith Pritchett and her world. McFife wants to build a new order that will protect America from the horrors of the Great Depression, which he barely survived. For him, these horrors of the Great Depression, the reality of the 1930s, were caused by robber barons, by predatory industrialists and bankers, and of course, they survived just fine, and it was the innocent workers who suffered, and, and suffered through no fault of their own. And so he yearns for a world in which workers, regular people, can be protected from economic exploitation, even if that means curtailing people's liberty, and even if it has to be instituted through violence. So if Dick hates every quadrant of the political spectrum, what then is the point of this story? What are we supposed to learn about political ideology from this book? I think the answer lies in the happy ending that we're presented with. What Dick is critical of is the fantasy of these ideologies. He's critical of the fact that these are really just daydreams. The happy ending is that now that our heroes have experienced these ideological fantasy worlds, they've been motivated to take real action in their own real lives in the real world. Hamilton realizes that he doesn't want a police state, and so he stops participating in it. He stops helping to build it even though that work provides him with a comfortable position near the top of that society. Instead, he decides to use his skills in a way that will bring joy to people and let him be his own boss. On top of this, he's going into business with Laws, a black man. In the second world, Hamilton had insisted that he's not a racist, but Laws challenged him on this. Laws agreed that Hamilton wasn't actively bigoted, but yet he still accepted that black people have fewer opportunities and have to work harder than white people do. And in the end, Hamilton hears him and he decides to do something about it. If Laws can't get a job working in the high-tech industry for which he's trained and educated himself, then Hamilton can go into business with him to welcome Laws into the world of the white middle class. 
And we see something similar from Edith Pritchett, who at the end here decides to help Laws and Hamilton rather than to simply complain about the state of the world and to try to shield her son from things that she thinks are wicked. And so in the end, I, I think this is what Dick wants us to see. It's the political fantasizing that is the problem. If we're dissatisfied with something in our community, in our country, then we should stop daydreaming and stop whining and do something practical to change it, even if it is just one small step. Are you disappointed that there is institutionalized racism in society? Well, then start a business with a person of color, or hire a person of color, and so on. Do you think that the military-industrial-congressional complex undermines democracy? Well, then don't work for a defense contractor. And Dick himself is clearly dissatisfied with elements of American society, American culture, and maybe especially American politics in the mid-1950s. I think we've probably said enough about racism and misogyny, and, and even about political bickering, and so I want to spend a few minutes focusing on the theme of the surveillance state in this book. The very title suggests that this is on Dick's mind, right? Eye in the Sky is a euphemism for a surveillance state, and it is inherently a kind of panopticon. And we see a very literal eye in the sky in the first world we visit when Hamilton and McFife fly up to heaven to see that God is a giant eyeball. But each of the worlds contains some element of this, including, and, and maybe especially, the real world, where Marsha Hamilton's magazine and newspaper subscriptions have material consequences for her family because the state doesn't like those publications. And this is real. This was the world of the Cold War, and especially the early phase of the Cold War here in the 1950s. This was a particularly dark time in American history. Soviet spies had infiltrated the American bureaucracy at really high levels and had acquired military secrets this way. And there was a real fear that the infiltration could be even more widespread than had already been discovered. Government employees became subject to background investigations, and association with political movements that were deemed too left-wing could bar someone from employment and, and also result in a firing, a firing from a job that maybe you've had for decades. And of course, lots of people were affected by this. We'd just come out of a decade of progressive politics during the FDR administration. And during the Great Depression of the 1930s, many people looked to a variety of left-wing political parties for possible solutions. Even John Wayne, the very icon of American rugged individualism, attended some communist political meetings. And this culminated in congressional investigations into whether specific citizens were or ever had been communists, whether certain government departments had been infiltrated, and whether certain private sector industries had been infiltrated by Soviet agents. The, the most famous of these, of course, is Hollywood, the, the film industry, in which many writers, directors, and even actors were blacklisted from ever working again and had to move to Europe to work simply because of their political ideologies, and, and often simply because they couldn't prove a negative, simply because they couldn't prove that they weren't communists. And this was scary to a lot of people, perhaps most people. The idea that the mere accusation of wrongdoing is enough to punish someone, that the burden of proof is on the accused rather than the accuser, right? This was scary. But also the idea that the government could investigate the backgrounds of citizens without informing them, without publicly charging them with a crime, this was all seen as a step toward a fascist state. And we can see this as well with the implementation of the Pledge of Allegiance in schools and playing the national anthem at sporting events. 
These are public loyalty oaths, often taken by children, which is something that just a decade previously would have reeked of Nazism and fascism and been considered wholly un-American. And I don't think that I need to say much more about Dick's reaction to this, right? It's, it's clear in this book, and it's clear in everything that he wrote. He was very frightened of the possibility of a totalitarian state in America and was especially critical of the use of mass media to create public cults. And this is one of the strengths of the book, Dick's willingness to engage explicitly with the serious and high-stakes political issues of his time. This is one of the things that science fiction is for, right? To get us to look at ourselves and at our own society and wonder if we like what we see. But in this book, Dick takes this a step further and asks us if we would really like to live in our fantasy worlds, or if those fantasy worlds would even be livable at all. On top of that, he has a direct call to action, any action. This isn't just Dick acerbically taking down popular political ideologies. He's telling his readers that it's up to them to be a positive force in the world, even if only in small, immediate ways. And I like this. But that said, for me, the value of Dick's high-concept story is the only real strength of the book. He's no pro-stylist, and while the book is a quick and easy read, there's just not a lot of pleasure in the wordsmithing. There were some other elements of the book that I didn't care for, too, but most of those are because the book is 60 years old, and I'm not sure there's anything to be gained by critiquing them, so I'll make this a short segment today. And so that's going to bring my review to a close. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and and talk with me about the themes and motifs that I focused on, but especially on what I've left out. And, And there are two things that I didn't discuss that I would love to talk about on the forum. The first is the idea that none of us are living in the objective real world, that we are all living in our own unique subjective world. In many ways, Dick is showing us what it would be like to see the world through the eyes of another person. And sometimes it's someone radically different from us and sometimes someone seemingly very similar. The other element I think would be fun to get into is the names. The protagonist is named for one of our founding fathers, Hamilton, right, who's become immensely popular thanks to that musical. And there's a character named Laws, which I think must also be significant. But before I go, I want to talk about one more thing, and that's Patreon. If you've been on the internet, then I'm sure you know that Patreon is a service that lets creative people crowdfund their projects. Clay Temple Media uses Patreon, and, and we are 100% crowdfunded with no advertising. And you've heard me mention before that this or that book was chosen by our supporters. We're getting pretty close to the point when that's going to be true of every book. We're almost out of books that I chose when I decided to do this project. So if you're interested in participating in that process, now is a great time to check out Clay Temple Media on Patreon. And there's all sorts of bonus episodes on there, too. And we're working on some pretty exciting goals. We're really grateful for that support, and I I want to take a minute here just to say a special word of thanks to the supporters who have already been helping me shape this show. And we've got still bigger plans for the future of the network, and we're so glad to have you with us. Well, all right, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Next time, we're going to be reading The City and the City by China Mieville. I'm going to go ahead and spoil that for you right now by saying I loved it. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.